Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Stewart Observatory, and welcome to this public evening lecture of the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series, which began in 1922 and uh, continues to this day, 92 years later. I would like to also welcome those of you watching us on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or watching the podcast on iTunes U, the University of Arizona page. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to remind you that we have two more public lecture presentations. We have one two weeks from tonight. It's a treatise on invisibility. Now, it's scheduled for Monday, April the 7th, and that's the night of the National Basketball Championship. And if Arizona, if Arizona's not in the game, then we'll have the lecture. If Arizona's in the game, I'm gonna have to make a decision, okay? <laughs> the last time I had to make that decision was in 2001, right, when we were in the championship game against Duke. And I'm glad I canceled it because they had the riot and everything, so that was, yeah, remember that on Fourth Avenue? Yeah. So, uh, and then two, four weeks from today, we will have a very special public lecture by Sir Roger Penrose of Oxford University, the famous cosmologist. It's basically, going to be a lecture on his ideas of whether we can make measurements before the Big Bang. Okay? But it's going to be an afternoon lecture. It will be at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You can park in the Cherry Avenue garage by the stadium for $2 for that first hour, and then starting at 5 o'clock, it's a dollar an hour after that. But it will be in this room at 4 o'clock in this room at 4 o'clock p.m. on April the 21st, which is right, four weeks from today. Also, if you are a student that is here for an assignment, I am the one who will validate your assignment at this table at the conclusion of the lecture. I will stamp your notes. We'd also like to welcome our visitors from the TRIO program from high schools that are here checking out the University of Arizona, and we hope you enjoy your time with us this evening. Finally, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, it's a clear night. The Raymond D. White 21-inch telescope in the historic Stewart Observatory dome will be open for your viewing pleasure, go look at Jupiter uh, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. All right, it is with great pleasure that I introduce tonight's speaker. It's Dr. Rachel Bazanson. Now, Rachel is actually new to Stewart Observatory. She just arrived in September. She received her bachelor's degree from Barnard College, which is part of Columbia in astrophysics. And then she completed her PhD just recently at Yale University in astronomy. So she is an Ivy Leaguer. And she's been in Tucson since September. She works on extragalactic topics. And I will turn, she, so she's one of our brand new postdocs, postdoctoral fellows. And I will turn over the microphone to her. Uh, the lecture is Galactic Cannibalism, the Growth of Massive Galaxies Through Cosmic Time. Uh, can you hear me? Yes? Okay, awesome. Excellent. Um, well, thanks for coming. Uh, and uh, tonight I'm going to tell you a little bit about the surprisingly cannibalistic lives of massive galaxies and, um, uh, and some of the evidence uh, for that kind of model of, of evolution over cosmic time. But I'm also going to try to tell you a little bit about the process of how we know what we know. because. I'm talking to a group of people who came out on a Monday night to hear a public lecture in astronomy. You could read a book. You could read 
an article. Um, but right now, you're hearing from an astronomer. And so what I can tell you is about astronomy, about the science, but I can also tell you about what an astronomer does. Um, and so I'm going to start tonight's lecture in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so just you know, kind of a show of hands. Who has been to a very dark place in the Southern Hemisphere? Everybody else in this room, put it on your bucket list. It's absolutely amazing, especially if you have any interest in uh, the cosmos. Um, so, yeah. Um, so what I'm showing you here is about half of the sky, uh, and this picture was taken not by me uh, at the at the VLT, the Very Large Telescopes. Um, and a couple of things to point out: this is the Milky Way. Uh, and when you're in a dark location in the Northern Hemisphere, you can see the Milky Way, but it's much brighter um, when you're down in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, it's bright. Um, it can make shadows. Uh, but the other thing, uh, since this is a talk about galaxies, I thought I'd show you some of our neighbors. Uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see them with your naked eye. Um, and so here, this little fuzzy thing here, and this is the Large Magellanic Cloud. And this little fuzzy thing here is the Small Magellanic Cloud. And uh, you know, I, I told you that I would talk about galaxy cannibalism, galaxies merging with other galaxies, galaxies gobbling up other galaxies. Well, these galaxies are in the process of interacting with each other, and one of them might swallow the other one. And they're also kind of interacting with the Milky Way galaxy, which you're seeing the edge of here because we're on the inside of it. So if the Milky Way is this fried egg thing and you look, and we're in the white part of the egg and you look kind of out, uh, this is what you'd see. You'd see this little edge through the sky. Uh, and these galaxies are also kind of interacting with, with our galaxy as well. So this, um, the, the galaxies do evolve. You can see them with your naked eye and you can kind of imagine this. So if you go down to the Southern Hemisphere, find yourself a dark spot and just sit outside and kind of imagine these things that you're seeing. Um, because you're only, you're only seeing a snapshot in their lives, but you can kind of uh, think about that in the context of what you'll hear about tonight. Now, the other thing that I wanted to point out here is that this picture was taken during a total lunar eclipse. So this red thing over here is the moon. Uh, and I want you to keep that in mind for a second, um, because here I'm showing you nearby neighbors. And for the rest of the talk, I'm not going to be talking about nearby neighbors. Um, and so here's the, you know, the very bright sky full of all of these objects, full of these nearby galaxies. Uh, and now I'm going to talk about what happens if you zoom in on a tiny dark patch of the sky, uh, somewhere right around here. Uh, and not with our eyes anymore. We're going to do it with the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and just you know, for scale, here's the moon that I showed you before. It's much bigger here. And this tiny little box is the region of the sky that we're going to zoom into. Uh, and we're going to stare at it for 2 million seconds uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is what you see. So this is the deepest look at starlight in the universe that we have to date. 2 million seconds of, studying, of staring with the Hubble Space Telescope. And again, just like in that big view of the sky, you see so much variety. So let's go through and uh, point a couple of things out. 
First of all, you see some stars in this. These stars are actually nearby. Um, they're stars from inside of our galaxy that have just gotten in the way. We chose a pretty dark patch of sky, but there are stars in the way. Uh, they're pretty faint stars, um, but they're there. Pretty much everything else that you see here is a galaxy, a collection of stars. And they're very far away. Some are extraordinarily far away. Some are, um, some are less, are, some are closer. Um, there are different kinds of galaxies that you can see here. And, and you could just stare at this for hours. I've done it. Um, but I'll just point out a couple of things because I don't have hours and you don't want to listen to me talking for hours. Um, here you can see some blue galaxies. You can see some red galaxies. And kind of everything in the middle. Um, and so my research is focused in, on studying how these things evolve, how galaxies grow and evolve with time. Um, but that happens over the course of, of a very extended period of time relative to, to my lifetime. So I can't just look at one galaxy and see what happens to it. Uh, so my PhD took about six years. Um, and. Uh, that would be, if I just chose one galaxy or 10 galaxies or 100 galaxies and just studied them for that six years, that would be like if I took, uh, you know, a picture of a baby, right, the second it was, after it was born and tried to infer something about the way that it lived its life. So that's not the way that we study galaxy evolution. Um, instead, we use kind of a cosmic time machine. We use the fact that the speed of light is constant. Um, and so if you kind of, here's a, very simple example, here's a telescope. And it's staring at two stars. One of the stars is closer from the other. The speed of light is constant, however. So anytime you see any light, uh, you're looking back in time from the, you know, the time at which that light was either emitted or reflected. Um, and so you're looking at, back in time at me, but the distance is very small because this room is, is quite small compared to the speed of light. But for stars, you know, the, the closer star the light only had to, leave, uh, had to leave the star later to get to, to the telescope at the same time. So the, the further the distance, the further back in time you're looking. Okay, back to the Hubble Space Telescope staring at that patch of sky. What you're actually seeing in that image is the projection of all of that cosmic time projected um, onto that one flat image. And so, um, you know, the more distant galaxies are actually a younger point, a younger epoch uh, in the history of the universe. So what we do to study galaxy evolution, instead of studying an individual galaxy, is we look at snapshots. We figure out how far away galaxies are. We deproject that uh, time dimension or that distance dimension um, and we find similar galaxies at different points in time. And then we look at how their properties evolve. Um, okay, so just kind of generally speaking, galaxy evolution hopes to both study the properties of galaxies through cosmic time and also explain the physical mechanisms that are responsible for producing the observed evolution. Um, and for most of, the, most of my research, and certainly for the rest of, of this talk, I'm going to focus on what we've learned in about the last decade about the growth of the most massive galaxies in the last 10 billion years. 
Um, so that's not the entire history of the universe. Um, the universe is about 14 billion years old, so it's not probing um, maybe the initial formation. Uh, but it turns out that this has been a pretty exciting time in the lives of massive galaxies. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, but before I do, I just want to give you a really simple primer. Uh, today, galaxies kind of look like one of these two things. There are two ma main types of galaxies in the local universe, to, or in the nearby universe, so we're not looking too far back in time. Uh, there are elliptical galaxies. They look kind of like this. And then there are spiral galaxies. They look kind of like this. And I'll go through a couple of properties of these galaxies. Um, so first of all, these galaxies are different in their colors. Um, so you can kind of see from these images, uh, elliptical galaxies are redder. That actually tells us that the stars in those galaxies are older and cooler. Uh, and then spiral galaxies are generally bluer. Um, so that tells you that they have younger stars. They're probably still making new stars. Um, they're also different in their shapes. That might be the most obvious um, to you. So elliptical galaxies are much more round. They kind of look like squashed spheres. Um, and spiral galaxies are much more like disks. So they, they can be kind of inclined. Our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. Um, this one's kind of edge on, not totally edge on, so you can kind of see. But it's just a, it's just a disk that's been inclined, like a frisbee. Um, the shapes of the galaxies actually tell you about the way that stars and other things in the galaxy move. Um, so elliptical galaxies are actually round because the stars are whizzing around in kind of random orbits and they, they end up tracing out. Think about like bees in a hive. They end up tracing out kind of a round mess. Um, whereas the stars move around in a spiral galaxy in a very organized or generally organized fashion. So they kind of orbit around in the same plane. Um, kind of the way that, that planets orbit around in our solar system. Um, and that, that organized motion means that there's a much more kind of organized uh, shape of the galaxy. Now, in the local universe, most massive galaxies look like this. Most massive galaxies are elliptical galaxies. Um, and so I mentioned that that, that means that they're, they're red, which means that their stars are old. They're not making new stars. They haven't been in a really long time, generally speaking. Uh, and so until about a decade ago, um, the answer to this question of what did these things look like 10 billion years ago was much more simple than it seems to be now. OK, so I'll ask this question, and you can think about it. Uh, if they're old and they're not forming stars, then if I look back in time, they might just be relics of an earlier time in the universe. They might just kind of look the same. Um, but I can be more careful because 10 billion years is actually a long time, even for a galaxy and even for a star. So I told you that the color of a galaxy tells you about the age of, of the stars in the galaxy. So 10 billion years ago is earlier in time, so the stars should be younger. So maybe this, they'd just be bluer, right? Um, and this is kind of the picture that we had. These old elliptical galaxies were thought to be relics of a much earlier time in our universe. They formed earlier, and then they maybe just stayed that way. And the really exciting thing that happened you know, in the past decade 
was that when we actually looked at these things, they didn't look like that at all. They looked quite different. Um, and, and first and foremost, they were about four to five times smaller in physical size. So they were much denser. And that was really surprising. And so we had to kind of take a step back and figure out what we thought might have happened. Um, so this is just kind of a, I'm literally just squashing the, the, resizing the image of a local galaxy, of a nearby galaxy. Here are a couple of examples. This is a baby picture of a galaxy about 10 billion years ago. These are on the same physical size, I mean, same physical scale here. Uh, so these are extreme examples. This is a pretty large galaxy, but they have the same mass of stars, roughly the same number of stars, and yet somehow these stars are crammed into this tiny little dense object, whereas in the nearby universe, they'd be huge. And this was really hard <laughs> to figure out. So that's good. That means I had a PhD thesis. Uh, so, so how do we make this happen? How can we explain this? Um, there are two main ways to make a galaxy grow. You can make stars, or you can add stars. Um, th that's oversimplified to a certain extent, but, but it works for this, actually. Um, because, you know, the first one doesn't work in this context. They're not making stars anymore. Um, these galaxies were already dead. So then we're left with adding stars. We're up to the point where there are massive galaxy cannibals, by the way. Uh, so people have made simulations. Um, now, the universe is full of galaxies, and this should be happening to a certain extent. I started with a picture of our galaxy maybe interacting with a couple of its neighbors. Um, and so this is a simulation of what, what might be happening. One way, in this simulation, you actually can produce that size growth. It started at the beginning of the simulation, um, and the galaxy was kind of small. And then it gobbled up all of these other galaxies, and they get torn up and ripped up. And don't worry, I'll show you this movie again so that you can kind of uh, think about it again uh, in the context of some of the things that I'll say later. Uh, but you can make a computer simulation, a computer model. Even though we can't watch gal an individual galaxy evolve through time, we can make a computer model um, where we can show this, this in action, adding stars to galaxies by ripping apart other tiny neighbors. And so now we have to test this model. Um, and I'm an observer. I, I use telescopes. Uh, and so my tests are going to involve actually looking out and comparing things like those simulations to what we actually see. So here are three tests. And I'll go through two of these tests, and then I'll go through the third test in a little bit more detail so they can get maybe a better sense of how specifically we, we did, um, we made the uh, conclusions that we made. Um, so the first question is whether that simulation is actually consistent with the things that we see in the universe. So, you know, that galaxy was interacting with a lot of other galaxies. It was eating a lot of its neighbors. We have to test whether that's a realistic simulation. Um, the other thing is, 
uh, that there are details of how that happens in the simulation that we can compare to what we actually see. And then third, and this is kind of closer to the premise of this whole uh, discrepancy in the sizes of galaxies, is we have to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples, or apples to rotten apples, or apples to older apples. Um, you want to make sure that you're comparing the right galaxies through time. And I'll expand upon all of these things uh, throughout the talk. So, I showed you a simulation that looked very, very different from the image that I started with. And so, uh, it's hard to imagine that this galaxy, even though this is just a snapshot, it's hard to imagine any single frame of that movie that I showed you looking like this galaxy. So it's reasonable to be a little bit skeptical that that's actually what's happening. Um, I can find examples, and I think that these are totally stunning, so I will leave them up for a second. Um, I can find examples of galaxies that could easily be snapshots from that movie. Um, this one's my favorite. You can totally imagine some little galaxy orbiting around and getting all of its stars stripped off and skewed around and orbiting around and then eventually becoming part of that central galaxy. But this is kind of a special case. You can find these examples but most galaxies, at least near us, look kind of like this. Um, and so one of the things uh, that we did was, if you look deeper at a galaxy like this, this is actually the same galaxy that I showed you before. It's just not in a color image. Um, and you'll see why in a second. If I look for fainter pieces of the galaxy and I look carefully, this galaxy ends up looking like this. Um, and, and so part of this is just is, um, is essentially based on the, on the resolution. It's kind of blurrier. But this, all of this extra light here, that starts to look a lot more like the movie that I showed you. This is the same galaxy. It's just that the evidence of that interaction is fainter than we're used to looking at galaxies. And so we did a study of, of a bunch of galaxies nearby, and we found that actually 70% of galaxies have something like this. They look a little bit less like that when you look carefully, and a little bit more fuzzy, a little bit less smooth, a little bit more consistent with that movie. So this is a snapshot from the movie that I, that I showed you. And this is another detail. Um, one of the things that happens in the simulation is that you start with this tiny galaxy, and then you have a whole bunch of little galaxies whizzing in and getting ripped apart. But if you look at the innermost region of the galaxy, it doesn't actually change very much. It's the outside that gets that gets built up with the carcasses, the innards of all of the galaxies that have been 
uh, ripped up and, and become part of the bigger galaxy. So, and I'll, I'm going to show you the movie again so you can kind of see if you get a sense of that. Um, but the centers of the galaxy don't change very much in the simulation. And the outer parts are really what change the most. So now I'm going to show you the movie again. So you can kind of see that, kind of. It's not perfect from this, and it's, and it's easier to do this quantitatively uh, if, you, if, you have the, uh, you know, if you have the computer simulation and you look at all of the details of it. But you can see, especially as things like that galaxy that just get ripped apart, all of those stars end up in the outskirts of the galaxies. So this is kind of a prediction. We can use this prediction to compare to our observations of galaxies. And this is actually what I did for my first paper in graduate school. Kind of cool. Um, we looked in the same physical region of galaxies nine, ten billion years in the past, and the centers of galaxies um, nearby. And it turns out that those galaxies, even though these, these tiny, tiny compact galaxies, even though they don't look, no galaxies really look like that nearby, they could very easily be hidden in the centers of massive galaxies today. And so this is actually pretty consistent uh, with the simulations, which is cool. Um, but the next thing, uh, the next question, the next test of this, of this model is a little bit harder um, to deal with um, because it's very complicated to trace reasonable populations of galaxies through cosmic time. It is very, very difficult. Um, and so one possibility is that 10 billion years ago, stars, the, uh, the masses that we estimate from stars were kind of different. Star formation might have been different. We could be comparing the wrong types of galaxies. That's hard to think about. Let's think about it in terms of people. Uh, so um, these are my, my stick figure people. And what I'd like you to imagine is you've got, uh, you're going to follow a class full of people as they age, maybe through class pictures or something like that. And you want to figure out by how much a certain category of people grow. Um, and so, let's say you want to think about how boys grow. Well, um, as long as you know to compare boys to teenage boys to adult men, then you'll get 
the appropriate size growth of men, of, of male humans. But if instead you compare these boys to the average size of women, then you might think that they grow less because women are generally shorter than men. Now, of course, there are exceptions. This is certainly the case for galaxies as well. There's a lot of variation in terms of populations. Um, but it's very easy to imagine a situation where you kind of mismatch your populations through time. So it's possible that instead of comparing you know, massive galaxies to similarly massive galaxies or to the, the galaxies that those galaxies will turn into at later times, we're comparing the equivalent of boys to women or, you know, vice versa. So how do we, how do we address this? Well, we decided to find another way to weigh galaxies. We wanted to make sure that we were comparing galaxies with similar masses to galaxies with similar masses at later times. Uh, you can't do this. <laughs> um, uh, you have to be a little bit more careful. Um, but essentially the idea is uh, that we want to make sure that we're comparing similar massed galaxies through cosmic time. So how do I do that? How do I weigh a galaxy? Well, the way that we weigh a galaxy is actually, hmm, well, it's not entirely simple, but I think it's easy enough to understand. Um, we can figure out how quickly the stars in a galaxy are moving, and that tells us about how strong gravity is. If there's more mass, then gravity will be stronger, and so the stars will move faster. And so if it was easy to measure the motions of stars in a galaxy, then we'd be set. It's not that easy to do that, turns out. Um, because when you look further and further away, things get fainter and fainter. And we're not just talking about finding these galaxies. We're trying to figure out how quickly their stars are moving in a galaxy that's 9 billion, 10 billion light years away. So that's hard. Um, they're very faint. And so the name of the game is collect as much light as you can. And you can do that two ways. You can get a bigger telescope, which is essentially just a bigger bucket to collect light from a galaxy. Uh, and then you can stare at it for as long as you possibly can. Um, now, just to clarify, I don't spend all of my time at the telescope. Um, it would be awesome, but there's, you know, a set amount of time in the year, and that's all that the telescope can stare at things, and the rest of the community would also like to use the telescopes. So, um, maybe about 1% of my time is spent at a telescope. Honestly. I didn't go to a telescope last year. I had so much data, and I got some data from the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, you don't go to the Hubble Space Telescope when you use the Hubble Space Telescope. That would be awesome, but you don't. Um, uh, so a very, very 
very, very, very tiny part of my time is spent at the telescope, and all of the rest of my time is spent trying to figure out what just happened um, with the data. But I'm going to take a second and talk about what it means to go to a telescope and what, what that looks like. Um, okay. So here's a picture of me at Saratololo um, Observatory. I call this the dorky sweatshirt sandwich. Um, this is, uh, these are a couple of my colleagues, my former colleagues at Yale. Um, this is actually Tomer Tall, who, um, with whom I did the, um, the work that I showed where you look deeper at the galaxy, where you saw that most of them, even though they look really smooth, if you look carefully, you can see signatures of their, of their history. Um, so this is a beautiful day at the telescope, and it is unbelievably gorgeous. Um, that's great. That's not always the case. Sometimes you go to the top of the mountain, and you're ready to go and observe with your telescope, and it looks a little bit more like this. So this is the view from my dorm room at the same observatory. Um, and in practice, this is something that I think is maybe hard to uh, <laughs> wrap your head around. But if you go to the telescope, and it looks like this, you don't get data. You don't get like a redo. You can reapply and get more time. But it's hard, because most days, well, it depends. Most days don't look like this. Often they look somewhere in the middle. They don't usually look like this either. Um, but if it looks like this, then you sit at the telescope and you get some work done. Um, but ideally, it looks like this, and you go to the telescope, and you collect a lot of data. OK, so back to my question. How do I weigh a galaxy? Um, so for this particular project, I had to use a whole bunch of different telescopes, or a different, bunch of different facilities. Um, so I used some medium-sized telescopes here in Arizona and also in Chile. And those telescopes were great um, for what we call surveys. So for looking at a big patch of the sky and identifying, finding galaxies to look at again. And then when I want to figure out how big a galaxy is, or small, in this case. I use the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is important because the Earth's atmosphere gets in the way. The Earth's atmosphere smears images of galaxies, which is OK when you're looking at things that are huge on the sky, like the Milky Way or the Magellanic Clouds that I showed you. Not a big deal. It's fine. But if you're looking at teeny tiny galaxies, like the image that I showed you, you absolutely have to do that from space. Um, so for all of the galaxies that we decided to um, assess the mass by, by weighing them, by looking at their stellar motions, we also had to get um, Hubble Space Telescope imaging to figure out how small they are or big they are. And then for this particular project, we went to Hawaii. I know, life is hard, um, and, uh, and used some of the biggest telescopes in the world and stared for as long as we could get the time for um, to try to figure out how quickly the stars in those galaxies were moving. So this is me uh, sitting at the Hubble, at, sorry, not at the Hubble. <laughs> this is me sitting at Keck. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I mentioned that this is one of the biggest uh, telescopes in the world. It's a 10-meter telescope, which means that the mirror itself is 10 meters. I'll zoom in on that in a second. Um, but in order to answer the question of how quick the stars were moving, we, we had to stare with the biggest telescope in the world, or, yeah, for this purpose, the big, one of the biggest telescopes in the world. And we had to stare for somewhere between 10 and 20 hours at every single galaxy. That's a lot of time. Um, just so that you can see on the inside, what I'm um, here, these are the, there are two Keck telescopes. Uh, we were using just Keck 1. Um, and this is the mirror inside of here. Uh, and this is the mirror behind me. Uh, so it's big, and the, the perspective is actually kind of weird. It makes it look smaller than it actually is, but the diameter is 10 meters, so that's big. Um, okay. But you can't actually observe up here. So this, this, this telescope is at 14,000 feet. And if you've ever been to 14,000 feet, you're not completely with it necessarily. Um, and so instead of having people at 14,000 feet and being kind of hazy and not necessarily making the best decisions, uh, you actually don't even observe at the top of the telescope. I just went up there because I wanted to see it. Instead, you're down at the bottom of the mountain, sitting in a room that looks like this, with, you know, more telescope—I mean, more uh, computer monitors than mission control—and uh, you're basically having a telecon. There's a TV up here, and you're having a telecon with the telescope operator, who's at the top of the mountain, actually moving things for you. Um, and so, what you do as an astronomer is you sit in this room and you operate the camera. So the telescope operator is the one that moves the telescope around. And you ask him or her to move it, to point it where you want it. Um, and then he or she sit, just sits there, and you just sit there for 10, 15, 20 hours. Not all at once. It's spread over a bunch of days. The night is not that long. Um, the rest of my time looks a little bit like this. I think this actually might be me in the airport going to the telescope for that run, um, trying to plan something on my computer and my advisor's computer. And he just thought this was the funniest thing he'd ever seen, so hence the picture. Um, most of my time is spent staring at a computer, either preparing for these runs or figuring out the data. Um, so I don't want to focus too much on this, but this is what the data looks like. Um, <laughs> essentially, these are spectra. Uh, so if you've ever used a prism to spread the light um, out from you know, the sun or any, any other thing, um, you basically get uh, the intensity of light as a function of wavelength of that light. So you spread the different colors. Um, and each one of these little bits is a different galaxy. Uh, the galaxies are very faint. So I know what to look for, so I can see a couple of them. But pretty much, uh, this is just looking at emission from the Earth's atmosphere. Um, but you know, if you spend a lot of time and you, uh, and you analyze this, uh, then you can extract some inf information. Um, so you can make things like plots where you compare masses. Now, don't worry about the figure. I intentionally made it blurry. 
All I'm doing here is comparing the mass that I estimated for the galaxy before to the mass that I get from looking at how quickly the stars are moving in that galaxy. Uh, so I spend all my time on my computer and I make you know plots. And eventually, once I've convinced myself that I understand those plots, then I write a paper and I submit it to a journal. So I turn the data into papers on the computer. And the punchline of all of this work is that actually, when we carefully look at the motions of stars, it seems like we're actually comparing the right things. We're, we're comparing the children at the earlier time in the universe to the correct adults and the later time of the universe. Um, and so this picture of massive galaxies growing through this cannibalistic process seems to be pretty consistent with the observations. Um, and so in the last 10 billion years, galaxies which previously we would have thought had pretty boring lives just wading through time have actually been puffing up and growing and gobbling up their neighbors and getting bigger by a factor of maybe four or five in size, their centers actually remain pretty similar through time. Um, but their lives have been very busy, even though it may not have seemed like that a decade ago. Um, so it looks like I've, I've ended even a bit early. Um, but I'm happy to take any questions that you have either about the science or about the process. Thank you very much, Rachel, for an excellent lecture. And we have plenty of time for questions. We've, and I will ask you to use the microphone to ask your question. Uh, on your film for cannibalizing, and you see the stars and systems collapsing in, mm -hmm. you mentioned the, the center remains somewhat unchanged. Mm -hmm. You see it going in, what makes it stop? Uh, so it's not, it's not completely correct for me to say that uh, let me take one step back. It's not completely uh, correct for me to, to say that an individual star from the center of the galaxy couldn't move out. Um, but I think you're asking about why would a galaxy that's coming in like this stop and become part of that. And the answer is gravity. So the galaxy in the center of that simulation is much, much more massive than the little things that are falling in. And so, and that especially is the case as a small galaxy it falls in and it, it uh, experiences these things called tidal forces where it gets kind of ripped apart. So it's even less massive and so it's easier to pull it in towards the center. So it depends on how it comes in, you know, that time that it takes to become part of the bigger galaxy um, depends on whether it comes in kind of 
straight in and then just gets ripped apart. You saw a couple of galaxies that did that. And then there are some galaxies that just spiral in slowly. So the time depends on how it comes in. Um, but the fact that it comes in is because gravity, the gravity of the, of the big galaxy is just much greater than the gravity of the smaller galaxy. Oh, um, the real answer to, to that is because it's already moving. Um, so the stars are moving really quickly because they, they orbit it in. Um, and so they keep moving quickly. They just orbit a different center. Have you found, have you found evidence that, let's say, two galaxies that are spiral, let's say, in the future, our galaxy and Andromeda galaxy, when they merge, do they continue to be a spiral or do they change totally in their shape? That's a really excellent question. And um, the answer is, the conventional picture is that when you take two disk galaxies, like Andromeda and the Milky Way, and you merge them together, you actually get something that looks a little bit more like this elliptical galaxy. Um, but it depends a little bit on how they merge together. Um, imagine it's different if two things come together like this, then you don't have stars moving up and down. And so they might be more, the, the product of that merger might be flatter. Whereas if they come like this, the galaxies will be ripped apart and it'll be more, it could be more dramatic. Um, so the actual end point will, will, be, will depend a little bit on the situation. But definitely the conventional wisdom is that they would look more like an elliptical galaxy at the end of that merger. Uh, you said that most of the cannibalism involves adding more stars rather than the formation of new mm -hmm. stars. And my question pertains to the dynamics which are occurring to bring this about. Because I was under the impression that when you have mergers between galaxies that each galaxy c contains gas and dust which then would merge as well to form material to create more stars. And so there must be some dynamic occurring that sort of pre prevents or suppresses this. Yeah, so there is gas in, in all galaxies. Um, but in order to form stars, you need to have cold gas. And uh, so this, this is a very simplified version of what's happening. So if, if for example, that galaxy in the simulation uh, merged with a big gas-rich disk galaxy, well, that galaxy is probably still forming stars. So there would be some residual star formation, absolutely. Um, the idea here is that m since most of the mass comes from that original galaxy, then there won't be a lot, there won't be very much more star formation. Um, but you're absolutely correct that that there's no reason that there couldn't be additional star formation if you bring in more cold gas. Question here. Uh, I'm concerned, well not necessarily concerned. As far as things like using the HST, how do you think that using secondary adaptive mirrors will affect your work? And how do you think that the LST will change the way that you're doing science now? Uh, sorry, that the LSST will? Yeah, 
Yeah, so that's a really excellent question. Um, the LSST will be great for some science. By the way, for those of you who don't know, LSST stands for Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Right. And, and so what the, what the LSST will do, will survey huge portions of the sky, and it will do it regularly. So it will be very good for finding things that vary with time. Um, so if you want to find things that blow up, things like supernovae, the LSST will be great for that because you'll see that variability. But the LSST will be on Earth. So if you want to figure out things like sizes of galaxies, then you still have to contend with the Earth's atmosphere. And if you want to do something like look at the stellar motions, then what you actually need is, is a spectrograph. You need that, that prism or something to spread out the wavelengths, and the LSST won't have that. Um, so there are some scientific questions that you still won't be able to address with those kind of telescopes that have a, a, fixed, um, a fixed observing schedule. I think you'll still have to have thing, you know, telescopes where you know, either you or somebody sits at the telescope and takes the data that specifically you want to answer that question. And by the way, I'd also like to mention the LSST telescope mirrors are being made right here under the University of Arizona football stadium at the Stewart Observatory Mirror Lab. Um, let's talk about the merging of all of these elliptical galaxies. Uh -huh. Now, I'm assuming that all of them have black holes at their centers. Yeah. What happens to the black holes? So, uh, those black holes probably you know, as you have, let's say you have two elliptical galaxies and they merge. The black holes should kind of stay at the center and eventually they should also merge. Now, there, this is really hard to observe because black holes are black holes. Um, but sometimes they're but sometimes they're active. The problem is that I've not seen any hugely convincing evidence that anybody has found two active black holes in the center of a galaxy that would, sh that would show you that those were going to eventually merge together. But there are other pieces of evidence that suggest that that is happening in the centers of the biggest uh, elliptical galaxies. We have plenty of time for more questions. Oh, we've got plenty of questions here. Uh, all right. Yes. I noticed in your simulation uh, you had a lot of galaxies spiraling in, and you said it was you know computer based on I presume gravitational theory. What about dark matter? So, actually, the dark matter is in there in that simulation as well. Um, so the simulation is run essentially with dark matter and then the stars in that simulation are, are painted on with some kind of prescription. Um, but the dark matter, we understand dark matter a little bit better than we understand the galaxies. So we know dark matter is doing this. We just aren't quite sure what happens with the galaxies that are embedded in the dark matter halos. I just want to pull you back to the whole elliptical. Are you, have you also been studying any of the um, effects, uh, if, uh, studying spiral galaxies that are colliding? And it seemed to me that you said that 
from the collision of a spiral, you will get a elliptical. Are, is, that, is there evidence that ellipticals are being formed because of collisions, or are they a natural aging process of a galaxy itself? That's a very excellent question. Um, <laughs> there is evidence in, in individual cases, certainly, um, of, of things that look like ellipticals that are things that look like they're on their way to becoming ellipticals. I mean, the, the problem with all of this is that you only see a snapshot of any particular system. Um, but certainly there are things that look like they could be some stage in that merging process. I don't personally study those, um, or not explicitly so, um, but it's not the case, I think, that every single elliptical galaxy forms that way. Um, and we're not quite sure how it happens. It's, it's a very active field of research. How do you form these galaxies? How do you turn one of, you know, a disk galaxy into an elliptical galaxy? It happens, um, but we're not quite sure and we're trying hard to figure it out. <laughs> So you said you spend about 20 hours looking through a telescope to gather the data, but how long, about how long do you spend staring at the data until you've reached a conclusion or <laughs> enough of anything to, to write your paper to get it published? It depends a little bit on the data. It's a really good question. Probably, I don't know, six months, <laughs> a year. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just need that inspiration. It's like writing a novel. Sometimes yeah. it's not there. Other question? Oh, way over there. Okay, I'll get low and then I'll get you over there, sir. Oh, I'm good. There we go. <laughs> so I just wanted to be reminded about what we're looking at in these two pictures up here and if they have a name or when yeah. the photos were taken. Yeah, so this is a nearby elliptical galaxy. And this is kind of a cartoon version of what its baby picture would look like uh, 10 billion years ago. So I can show you the real, oh, it's not working. Oh, here it is, okay. Um, so this is the less cartoony version of that. Um, but these, so this is a nearby it would be called an elliptical galaxy. They're both massive galaxies. And this is what its baby picture might have looked like. So these are all just computer graphics, in a sense? No, these are images. I mean, no, I mean for the baby picture. No, this is an image. That's taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. Gotcha. Well, actually, sorry, this is a little bit confusing. This is taken from the ground, and this is taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. And one there, okay. I was just wondering, do the elliptical galaxies eventually just kind of ultimately clean out an area around them and quit going, or do they just keep accumulating mass and therefore their reach keeps getting further and they'll just keep sucking in more stuff forever? Yes. No, <laughs> sorry. Um, I. I Either could happen. It t depends a little bit where in the universe they live. 
Um, so most parts of the universe, there are probably still galaxies that will slowly kind of be nearby and eventually be drawn in by their, their gravitational pull. But there are other parts of the universe that will be a little bit less dense, not in terms of the density of the galaxy, but in terms of the number of galaxies that are nearby. Um, so both can happen. Um, well, but the, the complication with that is that the universe is also getting bigger. So things are moving away from one another, and then in some regions they're moving towards. So it's, yeah. Okay, we'll do one more question. I have a question about how you analyze the spectra of mm -hmm. all the bands of um, the, the wavelengths. Yeah. So do you compare that to patterns that already exist? Or, or yes. can you tell based on the intensity of the light or the wavelength, the distance of that uh, galaxy that you're looking at, the age of it? Um, what, I mean, if you have nothing to really compare it to and you're discovering a whole new galaxy out there, how can you really be sure that it's out there and what, you know, and be able to draw conclusions that, you know, that you've so been able to draw? pretty fuzzy and I apologize if to those in the audience who don't know what, what you're seeing um, and I didn't want to focus on this too much, but I think this will answer your question. Um, so this is if I kind of project the spectrum, this spectrum here, um, for one of the galaxies, this is what I get. These little black wiggles are the galaxy that I'm seeing uh, in the distant universe. And there's a red line on top of it. And that's what the galaxy would look like if it was today, if it was nearby. And so actually, it's, uh, it's noisy. There's a lot of. You know, the, there's a lot of residual here. But in general, the shape is very similar. Um, and so what we do is we, we compare it to what's called a template. We know what we expect, and we compare it. We compare what we see to that expectation. They're not dramatically different. And you can learn an enormous amount from that, from that comparison. So is, exactly as you say, you can learn about the age of the galaxy from, how, from that comparison from what it would look like, you know, similar galaxies in the, in, in the nearby universe. Um, and so, yeah, this data is absolutely invaluable. Um, and well, The oldest galaxy that you come across? Yes. Um, the oldest galaxy would be, you know, somewhere like, well, I'm looking back in time, nine billion years. You have to keep that in mind. And so, two billion year old galaxy nine billion years ago is a pretty old galaxy or would be an old galaxy if it was near us um, but it would take too long for the light to get to us so, so we're never going to see that two billion years after the big bang that it would have formed right yes. okay two and a half billion all right uh, oh okay we'll do one more question <laughs> one more question and then that's it Going back to the theory of the Big Bang, um, if everything started at the Big Bang and is moving out and they've confirmed that the galaxy is expanding, how, who and how did they come to the conclusion that part of it is not expanding and, and rather contracting? Because I've never heard that particular thing before. Oh, um, so the universe itself is expanding. But there are parts of the universe that are actually gravitationally bound. 
Um, and so, for example, if something is close enough to you, like think, think about the Magellanic Clouds and the Milky Way galaxy. I think it's easier to think closer to home. Those galaxies are close enough that the pull of gravity from the Milky Way is stronger than the expansion of the universe. And so it, it's, a, it's a relative pull, essentially. Um, and it depends on separations. Okay, if you're not already on our mailing list, which is useful, for example, we have to send out an email about postponing a lecture because of a national championship basketball game. Um, there is a sign-up sheet back there. If you're not already on our email list to get emails about events at Stewart Observatory, feel free to give us your email address and your name. Our next lecture, still we're planning on it two weeks from today, April the 7th, and uh, we'll let you know about that if that changes. It will be our friend, Major James McGahey, who will talk on, give us a treatise on invisibility. He's written a paper on what invisibility is. Yes? Right here, this room, but it will be at four o'clock in the afternoon, okay? So the parking regulations of the daytime will hold, okay? So it's a little more expensive to park in the parking garage, $2 an hour. Um, if you are a student for an assignment, I will stamp assignments down here. Please feel free to visit the telescope. It's in the white building with the big white dome on top right next door. Go up two flights of stairs. There will be two friendly undergraduate astronomy majors to uh, greet you. Let's thank Dr. Bizanson one more time. <laughs>